Good morning, everybody. Uh, two weeks ago, we began a series of sermons looking at miracles, and in particular, looking at the seven signs in John's Gospel. Uh, in that first sermon, I said that miracles are confronting, and that miracles can be easy to misunderstand and difficult to understand. Well, today's text is confronting. It's awkward. In fact, in preparing for this sermon, I realized that I'd never ever preached on this passage before. In fact, I don't think I've ever even heard a sermon on this passage before. Well, why? Why might that be? Well, perhaps it's because it's awkward. Uh, if you were doing, if you chose to do a grand tour of the Gospel of John, taking in the highlights and seeing the most famous sites, this passage would not be on the tour. In fact, actually, that's what we did back in 2012. You may remember we, we did a tour of John's Gospel, and I, like many others, skipped this bit. I have a number of commentaries in my office on John's Gospel, and they likewise generally have very little to say about this text. Uh, they are, I think, like the rest of us, just in too much of a hurry to get from Jesus' sensational conversation with the Samaritan woman through to Jesus' extraordinary healing of the crippled man in chapter 5. And with respect to those commentaries, the majority, not all of them, but the majority of commentators see this miracle as John's version of a miracle that Matthew and Luke both talk about in their accounts of the life of Jesus. You see, uh, Matthew and Luke, they both record um, an incident which also happened in Galilee when a Roman centurion comes to Jesus to ask him to heal a sick servant in his household. Jesus readily agrees to go with him. But the centurion says, No, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house, but just say the word and he will be healed. And Jesus gives the word and the servant is healed, healed at a distance. Um, there's, there's only one other recorded instance of Jesus doing a healing miracle at a distance, in absentia, if you like, so to speak, and that's the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And that's a miracle that both Matthew and, and, and uh, Mark both tell us about. But getting back to that other one involving the Roman centurion, um, yes, that miracle and today's miracle in John 4, yes, there's bits in common, isn't there? Both miracles involve an important man who comes to Jesus who is in Galilee. Both miracles concern a request about a member of the important man's household and Jesus then proceeds to heal the sick person at a distance. So then, given the similarities, are we today looking at John's version, so to speak, of the Roman centurion story? No, we're not. Uh, in, in that other miracle, Jesus was in Capernaum. Now he's in Cana. Then the person was a Roman, a Gentile. Here, the person doing the asking is a, merit, is, a, is a member of Herod's court, probably a Jew. Then the asker's faith was strong and generates praise from Jesus. Here, the person's faith 
is weak and generates a critical comment. There, the sick person was a slave. Here, it is a son. There, the asker asks Jesus not to come to his house, for he is not worthy. Here, the asker begs Jesus to come to his house. There, the illness was paralysis. Here, it is fever. So, this is quite a different story. It's a different miracle. And so, once again, John has selected for us a miracle as a sign that otherwise we'd not know about. For for, for neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke thought to include it. Why didn't they include it? I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing. But maybe it's because it's awkward. When, when the royal official hears that Jesus has arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. The Greek is literally, literally lingering to die. The, the, in other words, the boy was dying. He was in the process of dying. It may be that the boy has been sick then for some time, and perhaps many prayers have been offered on his behalf. A desperate father is begging Jesus to come and heal his dying son. And Jesus refuses. Jesus responds in a way that appears to be actually astonishingly insensitive and hard-hearted. He responds with a criticism, a rebuke, a word of judgment. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Furthermore, he refuses the request, which is to go with him, and instead commands him to leave. No sign will be given to the man. He will never see his son healed. Oh, his son is healed, to be sure, but he never sees it. He's not there when it happens. Now, for those of us who've cut our teeth, so to speak, on the synoptics with with for those of us who've been introduced to Jesus by way of Matthew or Mark or Luke, um, we're, we're used to Jesus responding incredibly warmly and friendly and gently to requests for help, um, to requests for healing. He always say, it says yes, and he even asks many times how he might help a person, what this person or that person would like him to do. Uh, for example, in Mark chapter 5, we meet another desperate father. Jairus, an important man, a leader of the synagogue, his 12-year-old daughter is dying. And he too finds Jesus and begs him to come. And Jesus instantly agrees and said to him along the way to encourage him, don't be afraid, just believe. So why might Jesus respond here in the face of a desperate father whose son is dying with a rebuke? And a refusal. Well, what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves what John, the author, is up to. Um, He tells us, interestingly, um, he tells us that this is the second sign. Verse 54, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, As I said two weeks ago, and we'll say again, this doesn't mean that Jesus only did seven miracles. John knows, and he tells us, that Jesus, in fact, did many miracles. In fact, a bewildering, uncountable, vast number of miracles. 
had to stay indoors to avoid them. And John regularly refers to that fact. In fact, in fact let's do this. If you, want, if you want to flip back in your pew Bible, let's find on page 861, chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 23. And you'll see it written there, verse 23, chapter 2. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival... Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. In actual fact, the signs, it can't refer to anything that John has told us about. There's nothing in that description that fits signs. If you flip forward, just straight into the beginning of chapter 3, verse 2, at the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 2, we hear a Pharisee named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And then in chapter 4, just before our text for today, we read verse 45. When Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So John is clearly assuming that we know, he's assuming that we know this already, that Jesus, wherever he went, and especially when he went to the temple in Jerusalem, he healed all who came to him. Healing miracles. The blind seeing, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, the mute speaking, every sickness, disease, and disability healed. John is writing his book, for a people who have already read at least one of the other books about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So then, when John refers two chapters later to the healing of the official son as the second sign, he's not referring to some objective reality as though this was only the second miracle that Jesus had done. No, he's referring subjectively to his own agenda. Working out what that agenda is, is actually half the fun. So what is his agenda? Well, uh, he gives us lots of clues. Um, for a start, John links this second sign with the first sign, telling us in verse 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. Turning water into wine, which we looked at two weeks ago, was sign number one. And there are multiple similarities between the two miracles, not just the fact that they occurred in the same place. In each sign, a request is made of Jesus. In each sign, he appears to respond by deflecting the request, neither saying yes nor no, but rather responding by making reference to something that appears to be out of frame, something apparently tangential. In chapter 2, the first sign, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus responded, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. As we saw two weeks ago, this reply led us into thinking about the cross and how the sign relates to the cross. 
In chapter 4, now today, in the second sign, the royal official begs Jesus to come with him and heal his son. Jesus responds, apparently tangentially, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Jesus, and through his author John, Jesus and John are asking us, aren't they? They're asking us to think about the relationship between seeing and believing. Now, if someone refuses to believe until they've been shown the evidence, then we can see that that person is insisting on retaining their right to be judge. If I say, no, I won't believe until I see the evidence for myself, all I'm saying is, thank you very much, I am the judge. I decide what's acceptable evidence and what's not. I decide uh, in judgment over the evidence and over the argument that's made on the basis of the evidence, and then I'll give my verdict. I'm the judge. Thank you very much. That's not necessarily wrong, but it should caution us to be exceedingly careful because we might inadvertently, unless we're extremely careful, we might end up judging God. And that's bad because God alone is judge. Uh, no, 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 no. No, he gets to judge us, not the other way around. We don't get to judge him. So, so John's gospel is concerned at the deepest level with both seeing and believing. Seeing and believing are incredibly important in John's Gospel. And what is the relationship between those two things? Well, in the prologue, in the introduction, right at the start, in chapter 1, John says this about Jesus. He says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, or has not grasped it. Or, as it could also be translated, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And just a little ways after that, John writes, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. In other words, they saw but they did not believe. That sounds bad. Is it bad? Is believing important? Well, actually, it turns out believing is very important. John writes, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. It turns out, actually, believing is critically important. There's nothing quite as important as believing in Jesus. Um, where does that come from? Anyone know? Anyone heard that before? For God so loved the world? John 3.16, I can hear people whispering it. Very good. Uh, and from the conclusion of John's book, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So then, um, it's all about seeing and believing. The question must surely be, did the royal official 
did he believe? Did he see the light? Well, to be sure, when the royal official arrives, when we first meet him, he knows that Jesus can do miracles. He believes in Jesus, the miracle worker. Undoubtedly, he also believes that Jesus is a prophet, a man sent by God. He probably believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised son of David, the king of the world. But actually, if you look at the conversation, the whole conversation between the two of them demonstrates amply that even so, he had no idea who he was talking to. None whatsoever. He begged Jesus to come with him in order that his son might be healed. Twice. Twice he gives orders and hopes for compliance. If, if, he'd, if he'd really understood who Jesus was, if he really understood who Jesus truly is, what, how would this, what, what might this conversation have looked like? If he knew who Jesus was, what might he have said? Well, this is my guess, but I guess it might have gone something like this. If he really had seen the signs, and if he really believed, he might have begun the, began the conversation by saying, Lord, I am not worthy to come to you or to speak to you or to ask you to do anything at all. I was made by you and through you and for you. Yet I have ignored you and broken your holy laws, doing what I shouldn't have done and not doing what I should have done. Against you and only you have I sinned. I am not worthy so much as to untie the straps on your sandals. But you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Lord, you know already why I'm here, for you know what's on the heart of every person. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And Jesus probably would have said, Go, your son will live. And the royal official might have replied, I would prefer to stay here and be with you. I am a royal official. What does a royal official do except serve a king? And who is king except you? For me to stay with you now, that's infinitely better than serving Herod and far better even than being with my wife and children. How can you ask me to leave you now that I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I'm not sure what Jesus would have said to that. That would have been between the two of them, and besides, I'm just guessing anyway. But the whole point of this flight of fancy is, the point is this. Verses 47 to 50 show us that the man had no idea who he was talking to, that he was talking to God. The word made flesh. But in verse 50, he takes a step of obedience to the word of God. He didn't simply listen to it. Rather, he obeyed him. He takes Jesus at his word. Literally, he believed the word of Jesus and obeyed. And this suddenly gives us another point of similarity between the second sign and the first sign. Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. 
Jesus then told them to fill to the brim six stone water jars. The servants committed themselves to the hard labor of obedience and worked through transferring perhaps up to 690 liters of water from wherever the village well was into those jars. They did the hard work, but to them was given the exclusive reward of knowing what was happening. They knew that water had been turned into wine. Not so the guests. They never knew. They were in the dark. So to hear now also when he starts to obey, then he starts to see. In obeying, he is forfeiting his right to judge and letting Jesus be the judge, letting Jesus be the judge as to what is best. Then he starts to see. Indeed, when he realized that his son was healed at precisely the moment that Jesus said, your son will live, that's when he saw. That's when he saw. That's when he understood. And that's when he believed. What did he see? Well, he saw that Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus didn't pray for the boy. He just gave the word. He just gave the word. And three times then we, were, we are told the son will live. Sorry, the son lives. In the first sign we saw, or at least I hope we saw, that Jesus is the giver of joy, the one who takes away our shame and disgrace. The second sign we can now see that Jesus is the giver of life, the one who saves us from death. And John knows that we know that the means through which these things will happen is the cross. So then, Jesus' judgment is true. Unless we see signs and wonders, we will never believe. The man in the story never saw the sign because he was talking to Jesus when it happened. But he did see the sign in the true sense of understanding it. Even though he didn't see it, he saw it and he got it, responding to the sign which is believing in Jesus. Jesus' word, which had been uttered as a word of judgment unto condemnation, was transformed by his act of obedience into a word of judgment unto life. He saw the sign and because he saw, he believed. We too now have seen the sign because John has shown it to us. So the question now becomes for us, did we see it? Did we see it? Please, please notice also that Jesus' word is the son will live. And we hear that the whole household believed. So the son, who's a part of the household, becomes a believer. He's healed and he becomes a believer. Is the royal official's son still alive? Of course he is. Because he's a believer in Jesus. Uh, he, he, he did not know death. Jesus knew it for him. He entered eternal life. He's still alive. Because he believed. The whole household believed. So when Jesus says he lives, that's now eternally true. Please notice also the connection between seeing, believing, and obeying. 
There is no seeing, there is no believing without obeying. To say that we see and yet not to obey is to not see. To the Jews, uh, chapter 8, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And again, Jesus said, chapter 7, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I just speak on my own. To, to believe in Jesus is to see who he is, to get it, and therefore also to obey him. To not obey is to not see, is to not believe. Well, we can all sympathize, can't we? We can all sympathize with this man who comes to Jesus in today's text. His son is dying. To, to one degree or another, we can all empathize with his pain, the acute agony of his anxiety, his fear, his terror. We can sympathize, and it is right to do, th to do so. Likewise, we also may find a quiet place to pray or come to church in quiet desperation, wanting God with all of our hearts to hear and answer our prayer, to do this or to do that for ourselves or for somebody else. This text does not judge us for doing that. Heaven forbid that we should take this text to mean we shouldn't ask Jesus to help us and others in our time of need. We are right when we pour out our hearts to God, when we ask him to move mountains that, are, that we are utterly powerless to move ourselves, to acknowledge our total dependency on him. But this text does ask us if we understand who it is that we're talking to when we talk to Jesus. Who it is we believe in when we say we believe in Jesus. The second sign will help us see. Seeing is believing, but not in the way that phrase is usually meant. And believing is obeying. And the Lord be with us all.